Amen. All right. Hey, grab your Bible. Go to Romans. And actually, Romans chapter 16 is probably the first verse we're going to read uh, this morning. And let me just encourage you and uh, I guess praise you. That sounds weird. I think praise belongs to Jesus. But I also, don't, I don't think the right word is thank you. Uh, let me encourage you, okay, that it's a good thing you're here this morning. And uh, it's a blessing to be in the house of God. And this is a message you don't want to miss. Uh, like I said in the uh, earlier part of our service, we're going to spend the next few months uh, in this particular chapter, or for, forgive me, this particular book. And so being here is an important part of setting up your understanding for the months ahead. And uh, that's one of the great benefits and reasons for faithful church attendance is the way God designed the church to be is line upon line. And we, we've tried to emphasize over the last many years a verse-by-verse teaching in at least one, um, though at this point we have it in two different service times uh, where we're walking through books of the Bible. So your whole entire understanding of Scripture is going to be built line upon line, word upon word, and uh, so forth. So it's a huge blessing. Um, I was looking in my Bible. I have it marked on the front in the table of contents. Uh, in my Bible, the epistles um, that I've preached through in the New Testament, and this is the final one that I haven't preached verse by verse through. And so after we finish the book of Romans, we are undoubtedly going to go to the Gospels. And uh, my goal, and I've said this a few times, my goal is to preach through every single verse of the entire Bible. And I feel like I cannot be faithful to preach the entire counsel of God if I don't actually preach the entire counsel of God. And uh, so we've gone through uh, Leviticus, we've gone through large portions of Genesis, Exodus, and so forth. And now we have this awesome awesome privilege to go through a book that was essentially written more or less directly to people exactly like us. Now, some of their circumstances are going to be a little different uh, from ours. There's a uh, there's an expulsion edict that we're going to talk about today that happened during the uh, uh, early part. Oh, if we go if we go dark, we're going to have a good time today. And uh, you're going to hear me one way or another. What happened back there? Brother Bob, stop turning the lights off. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody's even over there. I don't know what that was. Hey, if we go out, we'll have a good time. But um, this book was written to uh, people just like us. There'll be a little bit of varied circumstances in their church to our church. But as opposed to last week, uh, or rather last study, we were in the book of Hebrews, and there was a lot of kind of bridging required. Um, There was a lot of uh, our understanding having to go back and refunction, or rather reform some of the things that they would have understood easily. Took us a little more work for. So Hebrews isn't going to take... Uh, all of that kind of really uh, nuanced work, but it's going to take a lot more application to us and a lot more, uh, it's a little bit more of that scalpel uh, for the surgery of our soul. So um, uh, the book of Romans is Paul's largest, most extensive doctrinal treatise that he writes. And uh, it's the book the vast majority of us would recognize when you're out soul winning or when you're explaining someone the gospel, the majority of the verses you're going to use come from the book of Romans. Now, not all of them. If you're, if you're well-versed across scripture, the gospel is throughout every book of the Bible. Jesus is the message of every book of the Bible. Um, however, the, the purpose of this book in large part finds its root in the explanation of justification, uh, you know, uh, by grace and faith and so forth. So we're going to see more of that. Uh, it's the first epistle listed after the gospels. I don't know if you ever noticed that. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then we get into the epistles, and it's the first one writ, uh, listed in your in your Bible, but it's not the first one written. In fact, a lot of the epistles, we don't know for sure exactly what year or when they were written. We'd have a good concept, especially of the, the epistles Paul wrote when he was imprisoned in Rome. 
We have a pretty good idea of about when that happened. Um, but the book of Romans, we actually, as we investigate, in the book of Romans, you will, we have a better understanding of when this book was written than any other book in the entire New Testament. It's pretty cool. And uh, we're going to do some investigating today. So I hope you uh, uh, are prepared. We're going to kind of look around across Scripture and find different, you know, uh, uh, timing and time stamps, I guess you could call it. So every time we enter a new book, uh, we enter the book trying to answer our interrogative questions of who, what, where, why, and when. It's important when you're reading a book that you know who wrote it. It's important when you're reading a letter. And again, it's a tired expression. Forgive me, I use it, but there's new people here who weren't here when we started You know, Hebrews. Every time we start a book, we want to answer those questions because it'd be like finding a letter on the floor that isn't uh, you know, it doesn't say who it's to or who it's from, and it could say, I love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. That could be Casey to Stephanie, or that could be random person to random person. Knowing who wrote it, knowing why it was written, those are important things. So we're going to dive into our interrogative questions, and then we're going to do something, if the Lord will give us time, that we haven't done in any other book, and I almost feel bad for not doing it. Um, it came to my mind, I was working through some study. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to do a chapter-by-chapter analysis, just kind of a really... 3,000 foot look down at chapter one and then chapter two and chapter three. And if the Lord gives us time, we'll do that today as well. So we got some study to do. Uh, the, the first question we're going to ask of our interrogative questions as it relates to the book of Romans is who uh, wrote the book and to whom was it written? There's actually a lot of discussion to cover here. Now, we, we studied our last book with the book of Hebrews. It was hard to figure out the who, right? Uh, whether it was Paul or Apollos or some people even suggest Luke. Uh, we know who it was written to. It was written to Hebrews abroad. But as far as who wrote the book of, uh, uh, of Romans, it's a bit of a trick question. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you a question you probably think you know the answer to, but you might be wrong. Who penned the book of Romans? Peter. Peter, who did it? Who penned the book of Romans? Incorrect. You all got it wrong. It's actually a little bit of a trick question. Go to Romans chapter 16, verse 22. Okay. Romans chapter 16. This is true of one other book in the whole New Testament. His name is Tertius. Not Tortus, but Tertius. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. But I want you to see. It's not salacious. I'm not making this up. But look what he says. Romans 16, 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Hold on. I thought Paul wrote Romans. Well, you would be correct that Paul did write Romans, but the question I asked was who penned Romans, okay? And uh, it's, a, it's a trick question, so now you can trick people, okay? And uh, Peter gave me a hard time last week. That's why I called him out this week. He gave me a hard time for finally admitting that Paul might have written it, so I wanted to stump him this morning. But go back to Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. So Paul is the author of the book of Romans, but this man Tertius, uh, he's just a man that Paul dictated the letter to, and uh, essentially, he's a typist. Essentially, he's just the, the guy who wrote it down. Now, there's, there's some speculation as to why Paul didn't pen the book himself, as he did the vast majority of his other books. Um, it, some people suggest, and it's, it's fine. Um, I don't know if it's one way or the other. Some people suggest that the thorn in Paul's physical flesh may have been a physical infirmity like his eyes. And he says, I believe, to one of the churches that you would have plucked out your own eyes for me if you could have. And so some suggest, based on the fact that Paul used a penman, as this book is later in the ministry of Paul, he's certainly getting older, but he's not, he's not by any stretch old. Um, I think Paul, it's, it's a safe assessment that most people agree that Paul died before uh, his 60s. And so the average age would have been um, 60 and Paul was martyred, so he didn't die of natural causes. So it's probably not the case that he just got so old he couldn't see it, um, but it's possible he had a condition with his eyes, so he used the typist. 
Uh, we don't know. It also could be, and this is worth submitting for evidence, it could be that just Tertius wanted to do this as a service um, to the Apostle Paul as he's in, uh, we'll see he's in Corinth at the writing of this book, that uh, someone just came and said, hey, can I, can I help you with this? Could you imagine if you were so good at handwriting that like you could write a book of the Bible? Like if you were this guy, what a cool opportunity. We don't really know. We just know that this is the man that Paul dictated the Bible to as the Holy Spirit dictated it to him uh, Well, this particular book. So uh, this book is written to Christians in Rome, a group of people um, that Paul has not met. He didn't start this church, um, and uh, but he had a deep love for these people. It's a similar situation to the book of Colossians. Uh, it's the only other epistle Paul wrote where he didn't know those people. Every other book that Paul wrote to, to Philippi and Macedonia, um, every other book that Paul wrote, he knew the people. He started their church, and uh, he was the one who brought the gospel to them in Thessalonica. He's the one that brought the gospel to them uh, in these different... Uh, you know, Corinth. Uh, but the book of Romans and the book of Colossians are two churches um, that were started by other congregations um, or other Christians that he himself had no input or influence on. So let's talk about the inception of the church in Rome. Uh, who started the church in Rome? Um, in the fourth century, the uh, Catholic Church entered for uh, or submitted that the Apostle Peter was the one who started the church. And their, their inference or their suggestion that Peter started the church is based exclusively on the idea that Peter was the first pope, the rock upon which the church was built, which again is not what the scripture says. Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. Uh, Peter had gotten the answer right, and, God, and uh, the Lord said, you're Peter, good. And upon the truth you just stated, I'm going to build my church. And so for the... The, the doctrine of apostolic continuation, I'll fill you in on what that means. Um, the Catholic Church teaches that every person after, so it was Jesus who gave apostolic authority to Peter, and then Peter gave it to the next bishop, who gave it to the next bishop, who gave it to the Pope of today. And so therefore, these men have the ability to speak as the vicar of Jesus, the substitute for Jesus, which again, there is, there is no substitute for Jesus. Jesus gave us everything right here. Everything you and I ever need is right here. So I can't ever come and say, well, you know, I know that Jesus said, you know, that you go to, to the Father for forgiveness, but I'm going to tell you, you need to come to me for forgiveness of sin. It's just, it's just not in the scripture, okay? And so the idea that Peter was the, the, the starter of the church in Rome has absolutely all of zero evidence. Um, in fact, the writing and inclusion of what's in this book seems to support the opposite because as Paul writes this lengthy book, he never mentions Peter, never addresses Peter. There's no biblical uh, evidence that Peter ever even went to Rome. Um, there isn't anything at all that points to the idea that Peter started this church. Well, we also know that Paul didn't start this church because he's, he's actually going to tell us in a little bit, we'll maybe see a verse or two about it, that he's never even been to Rome. His desire is to go there and he wants to go beyond. Um, so who started the church in Rome? Well, the best guess, um, and again, it's just that, it's a guess, is that the Christian or the, the Jews who came to Pentecost in Acts chapter number two, who got saved in the thousands, that they went home and brought the gospel with them. And then there's another evidence later on in the book of Acts, a few chapters later, the Christians who are now uh, being persecuted, they're spreading across the whole world. And yes, certainly some to Rome, and they spread across the map. Um, so again, this is similar to what happens with Col uh, Colossae. Colossae is a church that is started by another church. And if I'm not mistaken, I might be. I think it's Thessalonica. They're in the Lycus Valley, and they send people over, and they start a church in Colossae. The same thing seems to have happened, but from, Rome, from Jerusalem to Rome, where the gospel was carried there. Again, not started by an apostle, but by started by a church. Uh, so a unique detail of this uh, particular congregation is its ethnic uh, composition. 
So we're going to talk about that for just a second. Um, this, uh, at the start of this church, it was no doubt a Jewish work, especially if <clears throat> Acts chapter 2 is the reason the church in Jerusalem, or Rome, forgive me, started. It would have started, no doubt, as a Jewish work. But in AD 49, and this is a crucial kind of timestamp that we're going to see in a little bit, but in AD 49, um, uh, Claudius Caesar writes an edict that expels all Jews from Rome. Now, that's not just recorded in history, though, this is pretty cool. Recently, within the last decade, they actually found a handwritten inscription from Herod's secretary, and this would be the, the Judean king, Herod. Um, his secretary's name was uh, Suetonus, I think. I'll spell it for you if you want to write it down, S-U-E-T-O-N-I-U-S. He was the secretary of King Herod, and he wrote down that Claudius Caesar had, and I'm going to put it in quotes, expelled from Rome Jews who were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, okay? Think about that, okay? Here's what, here's, what, here's what has been found by archaeologists of the very first century that Claudius Caesar expelled Jews from, from Rome because of the disturbances instigated of Crestus. Now, let me give you the Greek word for Christ. It's Christos. So it is more than likely what he's saying is these Jews were in Rome and they were creating this instigation of this man, uh, Crestus, Christos, somebody. And so we, so Claudius Caesar expelled them. So that's been, that's been recorded through history and Roman history. It's also been discovered by archaeology in the last decade or so. And it's also supported by the scripture. And you're going to see that uh, where Aquila and Priscilla uh, during Paul's second missionary journey have already been expelled from, from Rome. Okay. So the composition of this congregation is almost entirely Gentile at the writing of this book. And that plays a part into the, the, what Paul addresses in the book. Uh, for example, he offers clarity. Large portions of the book are dealing with the Christian's responsibility toward the law. And so, hey, Gentiles, what is your responsibility? He addresses the Jewish nation's election and current standing of the, the, the Jewish people before God. And he's not addressing that to Jews. He's addressing that to Gentiles. Because there's some natural, right? We all kind of, if you got, you've been saved, you start reading the Bible, man, you start reading the Old Testament and God with the Jews. Then you start seeing the New Testament and man, the Jews are kind of, they're, they're slipping off stage and now they're in darkness. And what is, what is God's relationship with them? And, and he answers some of those questions really, really well. And so we're going to see some of that this morning and more of that as we get into uh, chapters 11 and so forth. But uh, Paul is dealing with the Gentile people almost exclusively. He offers a pretty steep rebuke in chapters 1 and 2 um, with the Gentile way of living. In fact, in chapter 2, he's going to say, hey, the Jews had the law, so they knew they were sinners. But even Gentiles, you have the law of God written in your hearts, and you were a law unto yourself. So you're without excuse too. And so he's really going to lean into it, uh, that, that idea that just because other Gentiles live this way doesn't mean you as God's people should. He's also going to bring up some thoughts about what the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 uh, told him. Hey, deal with this idea of abstinence of meats and things strangled and from fornication. And so as he's speaking to this Gentile congregation, he's doing what they asked him to do back in Acts chapter 15. So some important things of the who. We know the audience, we know the author, and we know the random guy who penned it, okay? And then let's move on to where. Um, this is really obvious. Uh, the book of Romans was written to Christians in... You know, it never amazes me, and this is why scholarship is a really unreliable thing at times. It never amazes me. There are always going to be people who are like, well, really, the book of Romans wasn't written to the Romans. It was obviously written to the Ephesians. 
stop, okay? <laughs> just, just, it's very clearly written in the Bible. I mean, you gotta, like, you gotta twist that upside down, look through foggy glass, and really try to make something that obvious be less obvious. It's very, very clear. It's, it's verse number seven, to all that be in Rome, okay? So as I mentioned, a church not started by Paul himself, but it's also a church he's never been to. Would you look at verse 13 of chapter one? It's a church he's never been to. So he has never met these people, um, which is cool. He cares about them, though. And he actually has a, he has a little bit of a, and, and ulterior is the wrong word. That, that intends some kind of selfish gain. Um, maybe if they were ungenerous, they could have viewed it as selfish. But Paul does have an ulterior motive for writing to this particular people. Uh, it says in verse 13, Now I would uh, not have you ignorant brethren that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let or stopped hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. And so this book is written to Christians in Rome, a place that Paul says, hey, I wanted to go. I wanted to come. I wanted to meet you. I have not had a chance to, but his every intention, as we read the book, you'll see is clear. He does desire to come and he desires to have fruit among them. So another where um, that's interesting is where was the book written from? And this is one of those times where you, we can know for sure uh, it takes a little bit of work. We'll have to do some investigating. So let's talk about when. And we're going to answer the where it was written from when we can determine when the book was written. So understand, if, uh, if you can determine where, I, or rather, if you can determine, if I wrote you a letter at 5 o'clock on Wednesday, if you can determine where I was 5 o'clock on Wednesday, you can determine where that, book, where that letter was written from. That's essentially what we're going to do. We're going to find Paul's kind of timestamps throughout the book of Acts and his timestamps in this particular book. And in a very unique way that we don't have that opportunity for many of the books of the Bible. In fact, most of the books, we don't know for sure when and where, but we know that Paul was in a specific place for a specific amount of time at a specific order of events. And he says, yep, I'm right here when I wrote this book. So we can know when and where this book was written. So we'll do some investigating. I hope you'll enjoy this. I certainly found it intriguing. Um, we are going to input one piece of evidence from a lesser authority. Okay. The lesser authority is archaeology. Okay. And the record of history. We know for sure that if something is found in history that contrasts the Bible, then the Bible is right and history is wrong. And there's all kinds of ways that can be. There's, 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 uh, 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 negative players throughout history have tried to alter things and scientists and things of that nature. So the highest authority is the scripture, and we'll get to that. But we do have this really cool timestamp of this archaeological discovery that the Jews, both recorded in Roman history, were expelled in 49, and also because of what we found in archaeology, were expelled in 49. So this is the reason that we know that the expulsion happened before the writing of the letter. So this letter is written after 49. So the reason we know that is because in this letter, in Romans chapter 15, would you turn there? We're actually going to see a bunch of timestamp details in Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, we know that Paul is on his third missionary journey on his way to Jerusalem um, and that he is collecting the offering and he is going over to Jerusalem to go bring the offering to the Gentile or to the Jewish church. And it's there he'll get arrested. And actually from there, he'll ultimately end up in Rome, though not a free man. But in this third missionary journey, we know the third missionary journey happens before the second missionary journey. So in Acts chapter 18, verse number two, you don't have to go there. You stay in Romans 15, which we'll be back to. In Acts chapter 18, verse number two, we meet a couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and they are expelled from Jerusalem already. Now, how does this all fit? Well, in Acts chapter 18, Paul is on his second missionary journey. 
So in Romans chapter 15, in the, Romans chapter 15 is the current event. He is writing firsthand, first person, live. Hey, this is what's happening. This is where I am. I'm finishing my third missionary journey. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. So in his second missionary journey, as according to the book of Acts chapter 18, Aquila and Priscilla have already been expelled by Claudius Caesar. So we know this happened, the expulsion happened before the writing of the letter. So we know it happens after 49. Well, also in Romans 15, you're going to find that he's currently collecting the money for the offering in Jerusalem. Pick up at verse number 25, and you're going to see he's going to mention where he currently is. In Romans 15, 25, it says, now I go. So presently, he's also told us in the previous verses where he is gone. He'll, and he lists it in the order of his third missionary journey. I was here, I was there, I was there. Now I go, I'm on my way unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them, this is where he currently is, them of Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Achaia is another phrase or another name for Corinth to make a certain contribution so it hasn't been made yet uh, for the poor saints, which are at Jerusalem. So he's currently in Macedonia, which is just south. The Aegean Sea is here just south, Macedonia, Philippi, and Corinth. We know from Paul's missionary journeys in Acts that he goes from Macedonia to Corinth. So he's already there in Corinth. And we actually read in that letter that he's writing a four time to say, hey, I'm coming. I'm going to collect that offering. I, I hope you, uh, you know, I do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed upon the church of Macedonia. And I'm going to come and collect that offering. So this book is written in Corinth at the time that Paul is getting ready to go down uh, into Jerusalem, placing the authorship of this book in a neat little kind of four-year uh, period of A.D. 54 to A.D. 58. And again, that might have been too much math and following for you, but it's a really cool reality because not a lot of the books of the New Testament can we say for sure. He wrote it there right in this time. We've got an archaeological timestamp. We know because you put all these other passages together that third missionary journey happened after the second missionary journey, and he was in this region and this time, and he was there for three months in Corinth. That must have been when he wrote the book as he's presently in Corinth. So a unique timestamp, at least from what I think. Now, we get to the most important question of why and what. Let's talk about why. Paul wrote this book, excuse me, because he had completely, in his estimation, uh, evangelized all of Asia, Asia Minor and that Aegean world around that Aegean Sea. And it was now time to look further west. You're in 15. Let's look at verse 21. Romans 15, verse 21. And again, it's more study. It's Sunday school, so we're doing a little bit of work. We'll get to the verse by verse next week. Romans chapter 15, verse 21 says this. Paul, or forgive me, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken, talking about Christ, of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. He says, I was busy showing the gospel light to people who hadn't seen it. But now, having no more place in these parts, Achaia, Macedonia, that having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey to Sp into Spain. Now, real quick. I wish I had a map. I apologize. I just thought about it right now. The, uh, so the, you got Jerusalem. Let me just kind of pick a spot on the wall. You got Jerusalem down here, Antioch up here. You go over this Aegean Sea area right here. You're down into, uh, this is Macedonia and Achaia. Rome is here and Spain is further. So Paul says, I've evangelized all of this everywhere I've gone. Uh, I've been able to share the gospel. Now my desire is to come to you so that I can go to the furthest point on the map of the, the known world at that time, uh, to Spain. Look at verse 24. Where's, uh, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you 
If first I be somewhat filled with your company, but now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. So Paul desired to go to the end of the known world with the gospel. The Aegean community had already received the gospel. He wanted to go to Rome where they had already received the gospel. And then he expected the church in Jerusalem to help carry him on his way into Spain. Now, what does that say to us? Well, to me, it shows the importance, and not just to me, but I think scripturally very clearly, it shows the importance of partnership with missionaries. That this church who never knew him, had never met him, undoubtedly had heard of the Apostle Paul. He was saying to them, hey, uh, Antioch helped thrust me out into this world. And now I'm asking if you will help thrust me out into this world that I might bring the gospel to where it's never been preached before. I want to go and preach where no other foundation has been laid. I want to preach the gospel. And he had this expectation and this hope that the church in Rome would give so the gospel could continue to go forward. And to me, that's a very reasonable expectation that God's people would engage in God's kingdom for God's work so the gospel would go forward. And so I just want to encourage our church family, unashamed plug, to support missions, to support the missions partnerships, to go ourselves, to help others who maybe we've never met or never known. They're like the Apostle Paul coming into the church, and we're just going to say, hey, we don't know you. You're preaching the right gospel. We're going to carry you on your journey to, you know, start a church in Southern California or to start a church. Uh, Actually, while I was up here, I got an email from Jacob Ray, which is who we're going to go be with when we go to Zambia, to Help Jacob Ray, who our church had never met, go into Zambia, Mongu, and share the gospel. And so listen, we ought to be giving faithfully to missions. That's, that's, that's an obvious application uh, from that very clear truth. So Paul wrote this book because he had a mission and wanted to carry it forward. He wanted to advance the cause of Christ. Um, now again, it's, uh, uh, it's worth noting that Paul never actually got to do that thing. He had this mission to go to Spain. And according to the Bible, Paul never made it to Spain. Never did. Never never got there. He got to Rome, but he got to Rome as a prisoner, right? So here he is in Corinth. He's going to take the final offering. He's going to go down. He's going to stop in Ephesus. Uh, he'll stop in Caesarea Philippi, uh, where Agabus will bind his hands in the girdle and say, you're going to go bound down to Jerusalem. And Luke will try to convince Paul, don't do it, you know? Paul says, what mean you to break my heart? I'm ready to be bound and to die. And so he goes to Jerusalem, gets arrested, ends up in Rome. <laughs> but he never goes to Spain. But he had a desire to do that. It's one of the reasons he wrote this book. Another why of the book, we already read it, but Paul desires to have fruit among them, even as other Gentiles. He desired to see some fruit in Rome. He was looking at that field thinking, man, I want to see people saved there. And I got to be honest with you, church family. I want to see people saved in Zambia. I want to see people saved in Arvin. I want to see, I want fruit among these regions that, that maybe I'm not called to pastor, but I want to go and be a part of that or send our church family to evangelize. And uh, that, that's Paul's heart. He wanted to go to, to, to Spain, but he, he never got there. But he did want to have fruit there in Rome. Another reason for the book of Romans, and this one you extrapolate from the what, right? We look at the what in a second. Paul wrote this as a clear doctrinal presentation to the Roman church and to you and I today of what justification is, about what it means to be saved, how someone is saved. And it is the clearest book. Now, again, I don't want to say clearest as to imply that others are less clear, but there is so much detail. It becomes irrefutably uh, absolute that the gospel is by grace through faith and so forth. So we'll look at that in a second. That brings us to the what of the book. Um, this book is, as I mentioned, the most concise collection of doctrines on the gospel Paul ever wrote. Um, the book contains powerful exposition. 
on not just the doctrines of salvation, but also doctrines Paul wanted to clarify and wanted to have in writing and, and uh, for the church in Rome to receive. A brief overview of the book. We've got about five, seven minutes. We might go a little bit longer. Um, Romans chapter one. <clears throat> it's important for us to recognize the, the forest and not just the tree, uh, especially the book of Romans, because the way that Romans is constructed, he will spend nearly an entire chapter on a single thought. And what can happen is, we can get so caught in that thought that we only see it within the brackets of the chapter boundaries and we miss the whole picture. In fact, chapters one, two, and three are, are, they're so interlinked to each other that if you interpret chapter one, just in chapter one, you're going to end up with all kinds of weird beliefs. Uh, if you interpret chapter two by itself and chapter three, it's all going somewhere. So keep that in mind. Let's do a quick overview. In Romans chapter one, Paul begins to assert the existence of God and God's righteous wrath on sin and unrighteous living. The chapter, again, presents that God is both uh, in existence and he is the rightful judge of all sin. And some people will take this chapter and erroneously select one of the dozen or more sins particularly listed and be like, look, this whole chapter is about this. No, chapter one is about God having the right to judge sin. Chapter two, so closely interlinked, is that we are all guilty. Because you can read chapter one and be like, look, that group of people's guilty. In chapter two, he's coming after all of us. He says that the Jews, they have the law that shows they're guilty. Gentiles, we have the law in our hearts that shows we're guilty. So chapter one, God has the right to judge guilty people. Chapter two, we're all guilty. And then chapter three, you might recognize it, right? We need Jesus. That Jesus is, you know, this is where you find the, you know, uh, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God. All these beautiful gospel passages are in these next couple chapters, chapter six and chapter five. But chapter three presents this beautiful upfront in your face. Yep, God has the right to judge you. Yep, you're deserving to be judged. But Jesus is the way of salvation. And then in chapter four, this is again one of those chapters where it feels a little like, oh, where'd he go? Because he starts talking about Abraham and David. But what he's doing is he's going back. Paul is going back to a Gentile congregation and saying, look, the gospel has always been preached as by grace through faith. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. David was justified by faith. Uh, and here he is. So, think about Saul of Tarsus, right? This man who spent his whole life uh, studying the law, now going back and saying, look, Jesus was with Abraham and it was salvation by grace with David and it was salvation by grace all the way through the Old Testament. That's chapter number four. Chapter number five, to me, if you had to write, give somebody a uh, single chapter, uh, I would say John chapter three, but in the epistles, I would say Romans chapter five for the gospel. Uh, it emphasizes over and over again, the free gift of salvation, the free gift of salvation. It is a powerful chapter. So it's all building on itself. So don't just isolate one chapter. Chapter one, God is righteous and judges all sin. Chapter two, we're all in the same boat of guilt. Chapter three, salvation is by grace through faith. Chapter four, the Old Testament was always leading us to that reality. Chapter five, this clear reassertion of, of the gospel and abundant grace. Chapter six is a powerful passage on then a Christian's relationship with sin. Hey, because now we're saved, because we've received that grace, that grace that was promised in the Old Testament, because God's righteous and can judge all sin and we're all sinners. Hey, now that we're saved and we received that great gift, that free gift, hey, what do we do with sin now? Uh, in fact, it opens the chapter. Chapter six, verse one says this. What shall we say then after this abundant grace of chapter five? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So he sets out in that chapter to say, okay, now that you're saved, though you don't deserve it, you're guilty and God could have judged you. And Abraham said it was by faith. And now we've received that gift. 
Do we just keep walking in sin? And he goes on to talk and discuss Christian living. In chapter 7, it's the theology of the law. What did it mean, Gentiles, to be under the law? And he uses this great illustration of being married and then dying, and then you can be married to another. And It's a picture of us being married to Jesus and not married to the law. Uh, Romans chapter 7 also possesses one of the most relatable passages in the entire Bible. It's amazing. You can read Romans 7 and be as a brand new Christian and be like, I totally get that. Like, it wouldn't need me to expound it to you. It's the passage where it says, oh, wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, man, I don't do those. The things I don't want to do, man, I end up doing those. And we all understand that passage because it's, it's just, it's right at our doorstep. It's how we live. Every one of us knows the struggle. And Paul goes into that struggle. Then in chapter number eight, he begins to talk about living victoriously with the spirit of God inside of you. He says, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And so we, yes, we're going to have this struggle of chapter seven. Um, but the fact of the matter is, or, and then in chapter six, we need to realize we can't just keep walking in that struggle. But chapter seven, you know, we've got this back and forth struggle. But in chapter 8, listen, you're more than conquerors through him that loved us. He talks about adoption and our inheritance. That You see how this all fits together and how it would be easy to kind of just parse out individual chapters? Then chapters 9 through 11, he deals with the Jewish national election versus their election for justification. Uh, and this, this uh, is important to us because it's, it's, think about it, it's a primarily Gentile congregation. And he's answering these natural questions that Gentiles look at the Old Testament and say, okay, the Jews, but then, then what about now? Why are they in such darkness? And he leads into that and leans into that. In Romans 10, he talks about Israel's rejection of the Messiah being always a part of the plan. Um, and then in chapter number 11, Paul brings the hope and reality that God is still going to do a work among the Jews. In fact, go there, Romans chapter 11, verse 25, please, if you would. He starts out this chapter with the question that has God cast away the Jews forever? And the answer is no. And and even in this chapter, he goes on to talk about how sometimes the grafted in branches, he uses this illustration that, you know, I'm, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And so he used this illustration that God, yes, he cut off the branches of Israel so he could graft us Gentiles in. But sometimes even the Gentiles get a little bit, a little bit proud and cocky for themselves and say, well, you're not as good as me now. And he actually admonishes the grafted in branches to not have an arrogant spirit, knowing that God could cut us off and put them back in. But he does make this statement as his relationship with Israel. Look at verse 25 of chapter 11. He says, for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. And again, he's not talking to Jews, he's talking to Gentiles. Lest ye be wise in your own conceit that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So did you notice the word until? So God did bring blindness on the Gentiles. They rejected the Messiah. The gospel went forth and God brought blindness on them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And so all Israel, when that fullness has come, shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Sion a deliverer and, there, uh, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Uh, so God does still have a work with the Jews that he's going to do. We'll look at that when we get to that chapter. The last five chapters deal with the Christian life. Romans 12, Paul brings in the hope and reality that God is still going to do work in the Jews and the believers. Um, we, uh, For sake of time, we won't read it, but Romans 13 talks a little bit about Christian character, submission to government. Chapter 14, we lean into that idea of Christian liberty. And this is the natural progression because, hey, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty just like everybody in chapter one. I'm guilty. I'm a Gentile. I didn't have the law, but I'm guilty too. I need Jesus in chapter number three. And that carries on, man, to the struggle of chapter seven, what I want to do, I don't do. And then I'm more than conquerors in chapter number eight. And then, man, God, what are you doing with Israel and election? And okay, you still have a plan for them, but you care about me. And then I get to chapter number 14 and it's like, I love Jesus and I'm trying to serve him, but what's that guy over there doing? Why isn't he serving Jesus? And Paul in chapter 14 deals with that. 
Hey, once you get on fire for God and you're serving the Lord, you tend to, it's the natural progression of, of our pride, to be like, well, how come Brother Miranda isn't doing this? How come they're not, how come they're not doing that? And chapter 14 deals with that. Hey, church, Roman church, here's how you deal with these people who think differently than you. Chapter 15 talks about the priority of unity and uh, over personal comfort. Chapter 6, or 16 rather, is a closing statement, so a bunch of greetings to different people. But his final warning is actually in chapter 17, Look at, or chapter 16, verse 17. Look at it. And this is the last thing we'll read and we'll be out because I know we're a couple minutes behind. Romans 16, 17 says, after he's already talked about unity and the importance of getting along with each other and getting over differences and letting people be, you know, accountable to their own master, in chapter 16, verse 17, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrines that ye have learned, which ye have learned, and avoid them. He says, hey, unity is important, but hey, there is a time where when doctrinal differences happen that there's going to need to maybe be uh, a time where there isn't unity. And so it's a powerful book with a bunch of different facets, a bunch of things to learn. The clearest, uh, most robust, I should say, it's probably a better word, I don't mean clearest, but most robust presentation of the whole gospel um, will be found here in this particular book. So we've got a lot to learn. We're going to jump in verse by verse starting next week. I hope it'll be a blessing to you. What I do want to give you, if you're willing, um, if you read the entire book this week, uh, I think it greatly benefit you. It's like two and a half chapters a day. Um, there's 16 chapters, uh, so if you read two chapters a day, it's, it's obviously not enough. So if you'll read two and a half or two and a quarter, um, or just read three, and you'll be done by like Friday, um, I think it'd be a huge blessing. You'll be able to know where we're going in. And, and I would even suggest this too. If there's a verse, man, you really, really enjoyed while reading, mark it. Or if there's a verse that, man, you were a little bit confused about, maybe mark some of that as well. That might help you when we come back to some of those studies. So a great book. We're really going to get into it. There's a lot to learn. I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed.